of all, first of all, just in case uh, people are not familiar with your work, let's sort of linger on the big, bold statement sure. here, mm -hmm. which is, first of all, just in case uh, people are not familiar with your work, let's sort of linger on the big, bold statement sure. here, mm -hmm. which is, first of all, just in case uh, people are not familiar with your work, let's, first of all, just in case uh, people are not familiar with your work, let's sort of linger on the big, bold statement sure. here, mm -hmm. which is, the thing we see with our eyes is not some kind of limited window into reality. It is completely detached from reality, likely completely detached from reality. You're saying 100% likely. Okay, so none of this is real in the way we think is real. In the way we have this intuition, there's um, like this table is some kind of abstraction, but underneath it all, there's atoms, and there's an entire century of physics that describes the functioning of those atoms and the quarks that make them up. There's uh, many Nobel Prizes about particles and fields and all that kind of stuff that uh, slowly builds up to something that's perceivable to us, both with our eyes, with our different senses, as this table. Then there's also ideas of chemistry that over layers of abstraction DNA to embryos to cells that make the human body. So all of that is not real. It's a real experience, and it's a real adaptive set of perceptions. So it's an adaptive set of perceptions. Full stop. We want to think the perceptions that perceptions are real. So so their perceptions are real as perceptions. Right. They, they are. We, we are having our perceptions. But we've assumed that there's uh, a pretty tight relationship between our perceptions and reality. If I look up and see the moon, then there is something that uh, exists in space and time that uh, matches um, what I perceive. And all I'm saying is that if you take evolution by natural selection seriously, then that is precluded. That Our perceptions are there. They're there to guide adaptive behavior, full stop. They're not there to show you the truth. In fact, the way I think about it is they're there to hide the truth because the truth is too complicated. It's just like if you're trying to you know, use your laptop to write an email, right? What you're doing is toggling voltages in the computer. But good luck trying to do it that way. That's we've, the reason why we have a user interface is because we don't want to know that quote unquote truth, the diodes and resistors and all that, that terrible hardware. If you had to know all that truth, it would, you know, your friends wouldn't hear from you. So you, so what evolution gave us was perceptions that guide adaptive behavior, and part of that process, it turns out, means hiding the truth and giving you um, uh, eye candy. So what's the difference between hiding the truth and forming abstractions, uh, layers upon layers of abstractions over these over low-level voltages and transistors and uh, chips, uh, programming languages from assembly to Python that then leads you to be able to have an interface like Chrome where you open up another 
instead of JavaScript and HTML uh, programming languages that lead you to have a graphical user interface on which you can then send your friends an email. Is that completely detached from the zeros and ones that are firing away? It's not. So of course, when I talk about the user interface on your desktop, um, there's this whole sophisticated backstory to it, right? That, that the hardware and the software that's allowing that to happen. Evolution doesn't tell us the backstory, right? So the theory of evolution is not going to be adequate to tell you what is that backstory. It's going to say that whatever reality is, and that's the interesting thing. It says whatever reality is, you don't see it. You see a user interface, but it doesn't tell you what that user interface is, how it's built. Right now, we can we can try to look at certain aspects of the interface, but already we're going to look at that and go real. Okay, before I would look at neurons, and I was assuming that I was seeing something that was uh, at least partially true. And now I'm realizing it, it could be like looking at the pixels on my desktop uh, or icons on my desktop. And good luck, you know, going from that to the data structures and then the voltages. And, and then good luck. It, it, there's just no way. So what's interesting about this is that our scientific theories are precise enough and rigorous enough to tell us certain limits, but and even limits of the theories themselves. But they're not going to tell us what the next move is. And that's where scientific creativity comes in. So the, the stuff that I'm saying here, for example, um, is not alien to physicists. The physicists are saying precisely the same thing, that space-time is doomed. We've assumed that space-time is fundamental. We've assumed that for, for several centuries, and it's been very useful. So all the things that you were mentioning, the particles and all the work that's been done, that's all been done in space-time. But now physicists are saying space-time is doomed. There's no such thing as space-time fundamentally in the laws of physics. And that comes actually out of gravity together with quantum field theory. It just comes right out of it. It's, it's, it's a theorem of, of, of those two theories put together. But it doesn't tell you what's behind it. So the physicists are, know that their, their best theories, Einstein's gravity and quantum field theory put together, entail that space-time cannot be fundamental, and therefore particles in space-time cannot be fundamental. They're just irreducible representations of the symmetries of space-time. That's what they are. So we have, so space-time, so we put the two together. We put together what the physicists are discovering, and we can talk about how they do that. And then we have the new discoveries from evolution of natural selection. Both of these discoveries are really in the last 20 years. And what both are saying is uh, space-time has had a good ride. It's been very useful. Reductionism has been useful, but it's over. And it's time for us to go beyond. When you say space-time is doomed, is it the space, is, the, is, the, is it the time, is it the very hard-coded specification of four dimensions? Uh, or are you specifically referring to the kind of uh, perceptual domain that humans operate in, which is space-time? You think like there's a 3D, um, like our world is three-dimensional and time progresses forward, therefore three dimensions plus one, 4D. What, uh, what, what exactly do you mean by space-time? What, what, what do you mean by space-time is doomed? Great, great. So this is, by the way, not my quote. This is from, for example, Nima Arkani Hamed at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Ed Witten, also there. David Gross, Nobel Prize winner. So this is not just something the cognitive scientists, this is what the physicists are saying. Yeah, the physicists are space-time 
uh, skeptics. Yeah, they're saying that, and I can say exactly why they think it's doomed, but what they're saying is that, because your question was, what, what aspect of space-time, what are we talking about here? It's both space and time, their union into space-time as an Einstein theory. That's doomed. And they're, they're basically saying that even quantum theory, this is Nimar Kani Ahmed especially, so Hilbert spaces will not be fundamental either. So that, that the notion of Hilbert space, which is really critical to quantum field theory, quantum information theory, uh, that's not going to figure in the fundamental new laws of physics. So what they're looking for is some new mathematical structures beyond space-time, beyond you know, Einstein's four-dimensional space-time or supersymmetric version, you know, geometric algebra signature, become a four kind of, uh, there are different ways you can represent it, but they're finding new structures, and then, by the way, they're succeeding now. They're finding, they found something called the amplitudehedron. This is Nima and his colleagues, the, the cosmological polytope. These are, so the, there are these like polytopes, these polyhedra, in, in multi-dimensions, generalizations of simplicity that are coding for, for example, the scattering amplitudes of, of processes in the Large Hadron Collider and other, other colliders. So they're finding that if they let go of space-time completely, they're finding new ways of computing these scattering amplitudes that turn literally billions of terms into one term. When you do it in space and time, because it's the wrong framework, it's 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 just a user interface from that's now from the evolutionary point of view it's just user interface it's not a deep insight into the nature of reality so it's missing deep symmetry is something called a dual conformal symmetry which turns out to be true of the scattering data but you can't see it in space time and it's making the, the computations way too complicated because you're trying to compute all the loops and the Feynman diagrams and all the Feynman integrals so see the Feynman approach to the scattering amplitudes is trying to enforce two critical properties of space time locality and unitarity. And so by when you enforce those, you get all these loops and multiple, you know, different levels of loops. And for each of those, you have to add new terms to your computation. But when you do it outside of space time, you don't have the notion of unitarity. You don't have the notion of locality. You have something deeper and it's capturing some symmetries that are actually true of the data. And, but then when you look at the geometry of the facets of these polytopes, then certain of them will code for unitarity and uh, locality. So it actually comes out of the structure of these deep polytopes. So what we're finding is there's this whole new world. Now, beyond space-time, that is making explicit symmetries that are true of the data that cannot be seen in space-time, and that is turning the computations from billions of terms to one or two or a handful of terms. So we're getting insights into symmetries, and, we're, and all of a sudden, the math is becoming simple because we're not doing something silly. We're not adding up all these loops in space-time. We're doing something far deeper. But they don't know what this world is about. Also, you know, they're in an interesting position where we know that space-time is doomed. And I, I should probably tell you why it's doomed, what they're saying about why it's doomed. But, but they need a flashlight to look in space-time. What flashlight are we going to use to look into the beyond space-time? Because Einstein's theory and quantum theory can't tell us what's beyond them. All they can do is tell us that when you put us together, space-time is doomed at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Beyond that, space-time doesn't even make sense. It just has no operational definition. So, but it doesn't tell you what's beyond. And so they're, they're just looking for deep structures, like guessing 
It's really fun. So these really brilliant guys, generic, brilliant men and women who are doing this work, uh, physicists, are making guesses about these structures, informed guesses, because they're trying to ask, well, okay, what deeper structure could give us the stuff that we're seeing in space-time, but without certain commitments that we have to make in space-time, like locality and motion. So they make these brilliant guesses, and of course, most of the time, they're going to be wrong. But once you get one or two that start to pay off, and then you get some lucky breaks. So they got a lucky break back in 1986. Um, a couple of mathematicians named Park and Taylor took the scattering amplitude for two gluons coming in at high energy and four gluons going out at low energy. So that kind of scattering thing. So it's like apparently for people in, who are into this, that's sort of something that happens so often you need to be able to find it and get rid of those because you already know about that. You need to, so you needed to compute them. It was billions of terms. And they couldn't do it, even for the supercomputers, couldn't do that for the many billions or millions of times per second they needed to do it. So they, they begged, you know, the experimentalists begged the theorists, like, please, can you, you got to. And so Park and Taylor took the billions of terms, hundreds of pages, and mirac miraculously turned it into nine. And then a little bit later, they guessed one term expression that turned out to be equivalent. So billions of terms reduced to one term, that so-called famous Park-Taylor formula, 1986. And that was like, okay, where did that come from? What This is a pointer into a deep realm beyond space and time, but, but no one, I mean, what can you do with it? And they thought maybe it was a one-off, but then other formulas started coming up, and then eventually Nimar Kanihamed and his team found this thing called the amplitude which really sort of captures the whole, a, a big part of the whole ball of wax. Um, I'm sure they would say, no, there's plenty more to do. So, so I won't say they did it all by any means. They're looking at the cosmological polytope as well. So what's remarkable to me is that two pillars of modern science, quantum field theory with gravity on the one hand, and evolution by natural selection on the other, just in the last 20 years have very clearly said space-time has had a good run. Reductionism has been a fantastic methodology. So we had a great ontology of space-time, a great methodology of reductionism. Now it's time for a new trick. But now you need to go deeper and, and show, but by the way, this is, doesn't mean we throw away everything we've done, not by a long shot. Every new idea that we come up with beyond space-time must project precisely into space-time, and it better give us back everything that we know and love in space-time, or generalizations or it's not gonna be taken seriously, and it shouldn't be. So, so we have a strong constraint on whatever we're going to do beyond space-time. It needs to project into space-time. And whatever this deeper theory is, it may not itself have evolution by natural selection. This may not be part of this deeper realm. But when we take the, whatever that thing is beyond space-time and project it into space-time, it has to look like evolution by natural selection, or it's wrong. So, so that's, so that's a strong constraint on, on this work. So even the evolution by natural selection and uh, quantum field theory uh, could be interfaces into something that that doesn't look anything like. Like you mentioned, I mean, it's interesting to think that evolution might be a very crappy interface into something much deeper. That's right. They're both telling us that the framework that you've had can only go so far, and it has to stop. There's something beyond. And that framework, the very framework that it is space and time itself. Now, of course, evolution by natural selection is not telling us uh, about like Einstein's relativistic space time. So that was another question you asked a little bit earlier. It's telling us more about our perceptual space and time. 
which um, we have used as the basis for creating first Newtonian <coughs> space versus time as a mathem mathematical extension of our perceptions. And then Einstein then took that and extended it even further. So the relationship between what evolution is telling us and what the physicists are telling us is that in some sense, the Newton and Einstein space-time are formulated as sort of rigorous extensions of our perceptual space, um, making it mathematically rigorous and, and laying out the symmetries that, that, that they find there. So. Leonardo da Vinci seems to have encrypted the Great Pyramid of Giza into the Vitruvian Man. Along the Bible is the world's most popular book and the backbone of its largest religion. Somehow, despite the efforts of billions of people who have studied its text, these pages contain several of mankind's greatest unsolved mysteries. Tonight, we take on two of the Bible's most famous legends, iconic treasures thought to bring untold wealth to anyone who can find them today. King Solomon's Mines and the Ark of the Covenant. Do they actually exist? Can they still be found? Or have they already been discovered? To find out, we'll search through time and across continents tracking a surprising relationship between these two priceless mysteries. And by the end, we may finally pinpoint their true locations as we go in search of the secrets of the Bible. The Bible isn't just one book. Depending on which branch of Christianity you follow, it's upwards of 70 books written by thousands of authors over the course of 1400 years. Its New Testament is famous for the Gospels of Jesus, and its Old Testament features the creation of the universe, the exodus from Egypt, and tales of the early kings of the Israelites, the most successful of whom was the famed King Solomon. According to the Bible, Solomon was born in Jerusalem and ascended to power during the 10th century BCE. As a leader, he expanded Israel's trade and military strength, founded numerous colonies, and built the first Hebrew temple in Jerusalem. Solomon was famous for his wisdom, said to be a gift from God. His proverbs feature heavily in several religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But he was famous for something else, too his incredible wealth, thanks to the legendary King Solomon's Mines. For centuries, many have speculated that Solomon had access to a near unlimited supply of precious metals from a secret underground mine. But unfortunately for those would-be treasure hunters, its location has been lost to history. The search for the mine has inspired several books and movies, with tales of Solomon's bounty hidden as far away as the Americas. But in reality, it's more likely to be found closer to Solomon's biblical home, specifically within the kingdom of the Israelites. And here, less than 200 miles south of Jerusalem, archaeologists Erez Ben Yosef and Vanessa Workman believe they might have uncovered the true location 
from King Solomon's mines. The Timna Valley is rich in minerals that have been mined since ancient times. But they're not the minerals you might expect. Well, many people believed that gold was the resource in Timna, what we see here is a remnant of a vein of copper. In Israel and all the neighboring areas, we don't have any gold. Gold as a metal is very soft. You can't uh, use it for tools and things like that. We know today that copper was the most important resource, the most important metal in the ancient world. It was made into objects that were useful in both agriculture and weaponry, and also to be used to help build in the period. Erez's team of archaeologists has been digging here in Timna for the past 10 years, trying to unravel the truth behind who controlled these colossal mines. Exploring the ancient mines of Timna, we are asking questions about who were conducting all of this mining operation, which society, in which periods, the chronology, the technology, the culture, the trade connections, all of these aspects of this huge operation. Archaeologists have long debated which kingdom owned and operated these mines, with most agreeing that it couldn't have been Solomon's. Previous activity in Timna dated this major period to the Egyptian dynasties in the 13th century BCE. But is it possible the experts have been wrong all along? Written evidence provides an interesting link between King Solomon and copper. According to the biblical text, copper was used to furnish and help build Solomon's temple. <laughs> They were building the pillars of the temple, they were covering the walls and other things in the temple with vast quantities of copper. In the time of King Solomon, whoever had copper had power. It's like oil of today. And these mines were one of the sources of that power. Based on extensive biblical evidence, Erez was convinced that Solomon had a copper mine in his kingdom. But now, he had to prove it. Step one was to analyze the tools the miners used. You can see very nicely the chisel marks. What you can see here is evidence of mining underground. If you're a professional woman whose career is not thriving, you're going to want to listen. I'm going to take you on a journey. With metal tools. And these chisel marks are 3,000 years old. Unfortunately, both the Egyptians and the Israelites used similar tools. So while these marks could mean this was Solomon's mine, they still weren't definitive proof. But Erez and Vanessa had one more place to look. The mining tunnels were only one part of this massive ancient operation. Our real information for understanding the activity of this period comes from the smelting camps. After it was mined, the extracted copper then had to go through a smelting process, which involves heating the raw ore to extract the base metal within. Once the copper is removed, the excess rock is discarded as a hardened black material called slag. In order to find the smelting camps, Erez and Vanessa searched the Timna Valley for slag. 
Soon enough, they found precisely what they were looking for. On this hill itself, we have more than 1,000 tons of copper slag, which tells us about 100 tons of copper produced over about a century. This is one of the largest copper smelting camps of ancient times. Once they found it, the archaeologists next tried to determine its layout. Because copper was one of the most valuable resources in the ancient world, it had to be protected. This means that they built a defense system around the smelting camps to keep people out. There was only one access point into the site, at the pathway that leads up to the top. It still wasn't enough evidence to prove who built the camp. But the picture of this ancient mining operation was definitely getting clearer. The wall and the location of the site are indeed evidence for the need of defense and protection of this valuable material. But also, they protected the secret of making stone into metal. The knowledge itself was a commodity. The technology used in the smelting camps 3,000 years ago is impressive for us today. And despite years and years of research, we're still piecing together exactly what this real ancient recipe was, which at that time was considered magic. Clearly, the copper industry in Timna was well organized. But the question remains, who was in charge of its organization? Was it the Egyptians, as historians have long believed? Or could it possibly have been King Solomon? Just a few months ago, Erez and Vanessa made an incredible discovery amongst the tons of leftover slag the miners left behind. With the date, that's amazing. I think it's the first one. Yeah. I need a special bag over here. This new information could blow the long-sought secret of King Solomon's mines wide open. It's crazy. This might be the event. For centuries, treasure seekers have pursued the famed King Solomon's mines. But as it turns out, if they exist, they may have been hiding in plain sight in a location that's been misunderstood for decades. This area is full of stuff. Just a few months ago, in Israel's Timna Valley, archaeologists made a shocking discovery while excavating the region's ancient copper mines. I, I, this is rare. Oh, here you can see it. It's a finding that could rewrite the history of this well-known legend. When Dr. Erez Ben Yosef first arrived to the Timna Valley 10 years ago, the area's copper mines were already well known. In fact, many believed there was nothing new to be found. It was commonly accepted that due to the mines' sophistication, they must have belonged to ancient Egypt. Unwilling to accept that as a foregone conclusion, Dr. Ben Yosef's team kept digging, and what they discovered was phenomenal. They discovered hundreds of remnants of the ancient copper workers, seeds and bones from their meals, and even parts of their clothing, all perfectly preserved due to the area's dry climate. These items were so well preserved, in fact, that they could still be carbon dated. The mystery of when these mines were in operation, and therefore who controlled them, was about to be solved. The team's findings were sent to a lab 
to determine if these mines truly were Egyptian or if they could have belonged to someone else. And only when the date came back from the lab, we were amazed because not a single date fit to the New Kingdom of Egypt. So of course we sent more and more samples and the results are clear. All the dates concentrated around the 10th century BC. The most intense time of production here was at the time of King Solomon. For decades, we've wondered what could have been the source of wealth of this small kingdom in Jerusalem that controlled a huge area according to the Hebrew Bible. And now with this discovery, we suddenly have an amazing source of wealth that can explain the power of King Solomon. This is an incredible find that will force people to rethink history. To me, it's clear. What is Kabbalah? How is it connected to the word of God? It's clear that if there were mines of King Solomon, they were of copper and they were here. If these Timna Valley copper mines did in fact belong to King Solomon, it goes a long way toward proving the Bible's claims of his unimaginable wealth. But one crucial detail is still missing. Where did his gold come from? First Kings chapter 10 of the Bible states, the weight of the gold which Solomon received each year was 666 talents. Converted into today's measurements, that's approximately 25 tons of gold for each year of his 40-year reign. To put that into perspective, the Bible says that King Solomon had more than double the amount of the U.S. gold bullion deposits currently held in the New York Federal Reserve. Nowhere within the kingdom of the Israelites can that incredible volume of gold be found. Therefore, we can only reach one conclusion. While the kingdom may have had a lucrative copper mine within its territory, the gold must have been brought in from outside. Fortunately, the Bible gives us a clue about who might have transported it and where it originated. According to the Bible, Solomon expanded his kingdom from the southern border with Egypt all the way to Syria putting him in a position to control merchants and freight carriers between Africa, Europe, and Asia. But only one nearby group had ships large enough to carry massive quantities of gold. The Phoenicians. The Bible describes a clear connection between Solomon and the Phoenician king Hiram. Solomon gave the Phoenicians grain supplies, and in return, According to the Book of Kings, Hiram sent his men to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to Solomon. Is it possible that if we head to Ophir, we might find the source of Solomon's gold? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where Ophir was. Historians have speculated that it could have been somewhere in the Middle East, Africa, or Asia, but its exact location has remained a mystery. A mystery that may have recently been solved by an historian in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. In the Bible, the land of Ophir 
is known as the land of gold. Ethiopia means the land of the yellowish gold. And the majority of gold is found here in Tigray. We think that gold from the Bible is from here. Situated in the far north of the country, Ethiopia's Tigray region is a very likely candidate for the location of Ophir. Because not only is the land rich in gold, but it also has a surprising connection to King Solomon. <laughs> At the time of Solomon's reign, this area was possibly controlled by another famous biblical figure, the Queen of Sheba. And what's more, according to the Bible, she and Solomon were quite close with one another. The second book of Chronicles states that early in Solomon's reign, the queen visited Jerusalem to seek out his famous wisdom. And she didn't come empty-handed. Her gifts included 120 talents of gold, around four tons of it, from her kingdom's mines. The queen and Solomon had a love affair, resulting in the birth of a son, forever uniting these two kingdoms. But the gold Sheba brought to Solomon was just the tip of the iceberg. She may have possessed some of the oldest and most famous gold mines in recorded history. There's a chance those gold reserves still exist today. In a remote area just 40 miles from where Sheba's palace once stood. All this land where I'm standing is full of gold. And the search continues today. While the exact location of the ancient gold mines has remained a mystery, there are still trace deposits in the surface. To find them, locals extract earth from the banks of the river, filling their buckets with sediment. Then they take that sediment down to the water for sifting. If we're close enough to the potential source of the Queen of Sheba's gold, the proof will be in this pan. Oh, wow. look at that. The search for King Solomon's mines has taken us out of Israel and into northern Ethiopia. There's a chance that this could be the source of King Solomon's gold from ancient mines controlled by his closest ally, the Queen of Sheba. Did you know that you can make a full-time income from YouTube without ever trying to grow your own channel? It's true. Back in 2020, I made over $4 million from just one crappy little video that I uploaded to YouTube off my iPhone in my apartment here in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, a lot of people might hear that and say, that's crazy. How do you make money from YouTube without trying to grow your own channel, without endlessly churning out videos? Well, the reason I think most people struggle to make income from YouTube is they go about it in the completely wrong way. They essentially try and build an audience from scratch, endlessly posting videos, hoping that someone will finally pay attention to them in the hopes that eventually, maybe months and years down... By panning for trace deposits of gold near the surface, locals in this area hope to pinpoint the source of Shiva's treasure. 
it appears they're on the right track. Look at that. We found gold. With this much gold close to the surface, there's almost certainly a much larger vein nearby. But finding it requires a major excavation. These stairs lead us to a network of hidden tunnels deep underground. These tunnels are located near a high concentration of surface gold deposits and date to what the Bible describes as the time of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. They have only recently discovered, and the careful work of exploring them has barely begun. Some historians, including Sise, believe they could lead directly into Sheba's mines. If so, we may be standing closer than ever before to the source of King Solomon's gold. With excavation continuing in Ethiopia, one of the Bible's greatest mysteries, the true location of King Solomon's mines, seems on the verge of being solved. But Solomon left behind one other incredible treasure that may be even more valuable than all of his or Sheba's gold. At the height of his power, Solomon's crowning achievement was the construction of the first Hebrew temple. He built it here on Jerusalem's Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock sits today. In Solomon's time, it looked like this, one of the greatest buildings of the era, adorned in copper and gold, a majestic structure designed for an important purpose. This was where Solomon kept the most powerful object the Israelites possessed, the Ark of the Covenant. Much like the location of King Solomon's mines, this iconic biblical artifact has long been lost. But a new theory is emerging, one that suggests the mines, the gold, the Queen of Sheba, and the Ark of the Covenant might be connected. And this connection could potentially lead us to the Ark's present day location. According to the Bible's book of Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant was built to house the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was made of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half wide, and one and a half high, or in today's measurements, 52 inches by 31 by 31. The entire chest was plated with gold inside and out. Four gold rings were attached to its corners where gold-plated wood poles could be inserted to carry the ark. The lid was also gold, adorned with two winged cherubs. But it's not just the precious metals and craftsmanship that make it valuable, because the ark was also thought to be a powerful weapon. According to one biblical story, the ark was once stolen by a tribe called the Philistines, who were immediately afflicted by misfortunes including tumors, boils, and a plague of mice. Their torment only stopped 
once they returned the Ark to the Israelites. Eventually, King David brought it to Jerusalem, where his son, King Solomon, installed it in the temple. From there, the mystery begins. The first Hebrew temple was destroyed in a war with the Babylonians 2,700 years ago. But there's no record of the Ark among the spoils. It's unusual for such a valuable treasure to go completely unaccounted for. The question is, could the Ark have been moved before the Babylonians arrived? If so, where and when? One large group of believers over 1,200 miles from Jerusalem is convinced that the Ark ended up in their territory, perhaps even during King Solomon's reign. It may be an unlikely story until you realize they live in a place we've already visited. Ever since the destruction of King Solomon's famed temple in Jerusalem, its greatest treasure, the Ark of the Covenant, has been missing. But some believe that the Ark may have been moved long before the temple fell to the home of one of Solomon's most valuable allies, the Queen of Sheba. According to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, there's one hidden test that if you fail is the number one reason why you keep attracting narcissistic men into your life. If you're a single and successful professional career woman in her 30s, 40s, or 50s, you'll want to pay close attention. If you want to stop attracting narcissistic men and finally manifest that soulmate relationship you've been searching for. You see, 99- According to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, when Solomon and Sheba's son, Menelik, came of age, he returned to Jerusalem to visit his father. Solomon tried to persuade Menelik to stay and become his heir, but the young prince returned to Ethiopia as his mother's heir instead. When he arrived back home, Menelik made a shocking discovery. There among his possessions was the Ark of the Covenant, which unbeknownst to him had been secretly taken from Israel by members of his entourage. But despite the Ark's power, Menelik's people suffered no plagues, leading them to assume they must be its rightful owners. The Solomonic dynasty ruled over Ethiopia for over 2,000 years. And Ethiopian Orthodox scholars like Dr. Solomon Gatane believe the Ark has remained in the country to this day. This ceremony has never been filmed for television before. In the Ethiopian town of Aksum, worshippers have gathered for an early morning mass. The focus of today's sermon is the Ark of the Covenant. We have seen this morning the gathering of people for prayer. Now, this is a unique opportunity to see the Ark of the Covenant out of the altar. 
just 20 miles from the Eritrean border, Aksum is home to the Cathedral of Our Lady Mary of Zion, which sits on the holiest ground in all of Ethiopian Orthodoxy. This is the most holy church for the Ethiopian Orthodox religion. Every year, thousands of people make a pilgrimage here to commemorate the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant to Aksum from Jerusalem. While there are many Christian denominations, only this one has based its beliefs so intently around the possession of the Ark. Every Ethiopian Orthodox Church worldwide contains a replica of the Ark inside its own Holy of Holies. It is instructed a replica must be in the church. Without having a replica, the building cannot be called a church. At the same time, a replica is a center of the worship. And in fact, the Ark at the center of today's ceremony is also a replica. Even the replicas are thought to have tremendous power and are rarely brought into public view. But what about the real Ark of the Covenant? If it truly exists and the Ethiopians still possess it, where can it be found? <coughs> the Ark is thought to be too powerful to reside in the main church. So a secure building was constructed to house it deep underground. And that building is here, just 100 yards away. Can you imagine right behind me, the 5,000 year old Ark of the Covenant with a tablet? The same Ark from the Temple of Solomon. Unfortunately, the true Ark is off limits to visitors. And actually, it can only be viewed by one man, the guardian monk. According to tradition, the Ark's guardian monk is chosen by divine prophecy. Once appointed, the guardian lives inside the chapel and protects the Ark for the rest of his life. The current guardian has held his post for nearly 50 years and is almost never seen. He usually stays inside praying and protecting the most valuable nucleus of the church. He's out. Look. Oh. He's out. Yeah, yeah, it's outside. This is a rare occasion. The guardian is outside. I'm going to try to talk to him. This is one of the first times that a current guardian monk has ever been photographed. It's a once-in-a-lifetime chance that few believers will ever get to experience. Normally, the guardian don't talk to uh, anyone, but uh, I got a rare opportunity. He asked me what people saying about the true Ark of the Covenant. Then I told him that some of them say that it's not in Ethiopia. He said the Ark is here. The Ark of the True Ark of the Covenant is here. For now, that confirmation will have to be enough. I believe earlier, I believe now and forever. But it gives me great, great pleasure talking to 
the guardian monk. He blessed me by the hand that he touched the true arc of the governor. So I'm extremely happy. Is it possible that the true Ark of the Covenant was removed from Israel and has remained here for thousands of years? Have you heard about this education stimulus program? This could deposit up to $6,495 directly into your bank account to go back to school. Congress has just expanded eligibility on and has remained here for thousands of years. For the nearly 50 million members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, there is no question that the answer is yes. Meanwhile, historians, other religious groups, archaeologists, and even the Nazi party have continued to search for the Ark. Many of them believe it never left Israel in the first place, but all agree that it somehow escaped the temple's destruction. If the Israelites did manage to save the Ark in the midst of a war, Archaeologist Harry Moskov believes he knows precisely how they pulled it off. Right now we're on the southern slope of the Temple Mount. This is the holiest spot on earth. Just beyond this wall is where the Holy of Holies, King Solomon's Temple, and Ark of the Covenant stood. When the Temple was destroyed, the Ark disappeared. Many people believe that the Ark may have been destroyed or lost. But I'm here to tell you that, in fact, the Ark still exists, even till today, and is not far from here. If the Ark truly remains in Israel, the question is, how did it escape before the Temple's destruction? According to Harry, there is only one possible answer. There are over 35 acres of tunnels underneath the Temple Mount. And many of them lead out of Jerusalem. According to my research, the ancient Israelites in the times of the first temple may have used this tunnel system to hide the Ark of the Covenants before the destruction in 586 BC. If Harry's theory is correct, we now have an incredible opportunity to track the Ark. Because even though access to the tunnels is highly restricted, with Harry's help, we can enter these 3,000-year-old passages and see them for ourselves. Where I'm taking you now is the original tunnel system. Now, this tunnel is really the closest point that we have to actually getting to the chamber of the Ark of the Covenant. It's down here, it's underneath this. Many religious sources agree that the Ark of the Covenant once sat securely in King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But when that temple was destroyed, the Ark may have been saved by way of a network of secret tunnels beneath the city. There are over 50 tunnels under the Temple Mount, many of them dating all the way back to King Solomon's day. We know that in King Solomon's time, the time of the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant was held in the Holy of Holies chamber directly above us. Everything started right here. King Solomon, in his great wisdom, knew that he might need an escape route. He used these titles as an insurance plan in case the temple would come under attack. 
Just as Solomon predicted, the attack came from the Babylonians, who completely destroyed the temple. But by then, the Ark may have been long gone. There's a story that says a thousand priests were able to escape with the temple vessels, and you can easily imagine the priests rushing these temple vessels out of these tunnels for safekeeping. Follow the tunnels, and we could locate the final resting place of the Ark and all the rest of the temple's treasures. So if you connect the dots, what you have is a direct path from the Holy of Holies directly above us with the Ark of the Covenant in it in the first temple down straight to the chamber where the Ark was kept through these tunnels and onward 18 miles all the way to the plains of Jericho to Qumran. I've been working for over 20 years to find the Ark of the Covenant and I believe we're closer than ever before to finding it. But the Ark is very powerful it is the most powerful object in the history of mankind and will only be found under the right conditions when it's ready. Those perfect conditions may soon be upon us. Because in the plains of Jericho, precisely where the tunnels lead, treasure hunter Jim Barfield thinks he may have found the perfect hiding spot, along with an ancient treasure map that could lead us directly to the Ark of the Covenant. These are the ancient ruins of the community of Qumran. They're most famous because this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Dead Sea Scrolls are ancient Jewish religious texts, some up to 2,500 years old. They were buried here, in caves, and only rediscovered in the 1940s. But then, in 1952, one more scroll was found, unlike any of the others. It's different in two ways. First, it's material, not written on parchment, but hammered into precious copper. And second, it's content. It doesn't contain scripture. It contains something far more valuable. The copper scroll is kind of like a treasure map listing the locations of the treasures of ancient Israel, including the Ark of the Covenant. For the first time in history, I saw my own initiative path. They showed me a mountain that I was supposed to... For the first time in history, Jim has combined the Copper Scrolls instructions with geological surveys and scientific data to zero in on the potential location of the buried treasure. Location number one on the Copper Scroll describes 17 talents of silver service vessels from the Temple of Solomon. And the Copper Scroll says that they are located at the steps heading east, 40 cubits long. Jim's survey showed only one location with steps heading east. When he measured them, he knew he was on the right track. These steps are exactly 40 cubits long, heading east. I am convinced those 17 talents of silver service vessels are right here under this ground. Jim is currently lobbying the Israeli government for permission to excavate. But according to him, there's far more to uncover than just 17 talents of silver. His map may lead to even greater treasures, including the Ark of the Covenant.
it possible that the Ark of the Covenant was secretly rushed from the first Hebrew temple in Jerusalem just before the temple's destruction? Treasure hunter Jim Barfield believes the answer is yes. He has decoded an ancient treasure map, hammered into a copper scroll thousands of years old, which lists the supposed locations of the most valuable artifacts from the temple. According to Jim, they can all be found in the ancient city of Qumran. The second location on the Copper Scroll was surprisingly easy to find, considering the value of what's buried right here. The Copper Scrolls describe this location like this. In the dry cistern of the great ruined courtyard of the Peristyle is hidden polished gold. In front of the uppermost opening are 900 talents. That is 33 tons of polished gold at this location. Armed with a survey of Qumran, Jim was quickly able to locate the town's cistern. I came out here with a member of the Israeli parliament and a very powerful metal detector. And when we got to this spot, the readings were off the charts. I could not believe what I saw. I went home and I buried 30 pounds of silver in my front yard and the readings didn't even come close. But the gold was never Jim's primary target. It's just one more clue that could lead to the greatest prize of all. Location number one, location number two, lined up perfectly with my map. But my ultimate goal is to find location number three, which includes the temple vessels and the Ark of the Covenant. The Copper Scroll describes this location as being at the north end of the Hill of Colleen. It couldn't be within the ruins of Qumran because there are no hills there. While Qumran sits on flatland, there are several large hills nearby. Jim studied dozens of satellite images to find one that matched the Copper Scroll's description. It's right here. Not only does this hill feature a hidden cave, it also sits in perfect alignment with the other temple treasures. Take location number one, location number two, and you connect them with a straight line. They will lead directly to this cave that holds Israel's most important treasures, including the Ark of the Covenant. Jeremiah brought the Ark of the Covenant, the Tabernacle of Moses, and buried them inside of a cave and sealed the entrance. When I got to the cave, some of the stones looked different than the rest. It appears that an ancient trowel of some type was used to form this seal. I took a sample of this stone into two different companies. They said it was an ancient man-made mortar, unlike any natural formation. It's clear that whoever sealed this cave went to great lengths to hide its contents. Could those contents include the Ark of the Covenant? After we identified this as the most likely site of the cave, we came back with the high-powered metal detector. When we saw the readings for this location, we knew that this was the mother loan. The metal detector readings at the cave are five times higher than the 33 tons of gold at site number two, suggesting an even greater prize could indeed be hidden here. It's obvious that something's here. 
This episode is recorded under a full moon on August 11th, 2022 at 8.54 p.m. Oh, dang. Hope you're doing good. Hope you're loving it. We're about to do a remix by Pfizer Drone. Check it out.
empowered shower of blazing sparks in retina of slight degree and free vision. Mark on downgrade, slow fade, heartbeat. Rise to the occasional slide to its defeat. Repeat fractions that accost you, molested derelict gumshoe, dumbwaiter, pre-season gunshot masturbator. Mercury glides through the fusion of planetary wheezings, and it's a mindfuck affair. Check the pulse pulsating regiments below the thick sun glare. Loose case corpse of rich rot gut. Well, I was hot to trot and ready for action. Any action. A distraction from the usual fare, but my flair never faltered. Hey, how you doing? And let me assure you in half awareness that I was a brother of low degree. On my knees in the semi-darkness of nightshade and justice. <laughs> <clears throat> Penetration forms the basis of unnatural reproduction. Introduction to the underworld, underbelly, topsy-turvy skeletal regime. In the season of blindness, I research the fields of braille laid out before me. Bumps on skin forming masses, passes as in human form. Scorned heat garbage runner, ringworm slant farmer, the father of all disease. Atmospheric dance with darkness, illuminated pulse of a star across a solar plane. Phosphorescent love take the space shove and wind up lost in the milky way of suppressed sex and perversion. Worm runners shimmy through the aftermath of destitutional insanity. All the goats escape and the burdens are burned on a box style. Flames shooting high through the air and martyrdom intact. But I do not intend to discourage you with these words of dime store wisdom. But if the shoe fits, wear it. And by the looks of you, you're about a size 13. Which, if the myths are to be believed, is a telltale sign of further endowments. You get my trip awkward ramblings. Hateful thoughts burrow deep beneath hot flash, withered flesh-eating maggot lust. Furlough to indifference and intolerant behavior. But darling, don't get me wrong, you are my savior. Further research may not be necessary. Awaiting instruction in this blackened death march game. The teetering on the brink can drag to the boiling cup of disillusion their cheeks repent. Relentlessly searching for a cure to this vile addiction. Sickened by the sight of the children, I myself exhibited, roaming aimlessly through piles of rubbish, hashish-induced comatose, drug-state elation. Roadmap to anywhere, somewhere, nowhere. Lines crumble and blessed with the attentiveness of a doting mother of a fucking cape smile for a show. Slowbo Billy. Somewhere over the rainbow. Colored sleight of hand and crippled finger. Ring her neck and wretched body ground to pulp. And I am neither here nor there. 
An unaware observer of life's scrumptious plate of manure, matured and often squandered. Burning image of infectious wild dog rampage, unlocked cages wither with desire. The surefire plot override the connection. Spent mind and crawling bad luck, dumb fuck, pretension. An added dimension of hawkers, smooth gin. Where to begin with an ending so close, and nothing but cheap ramblings of pharmaceutical ignorance being regurgitated from my gaping orifice. Like the orange sunset of yesteryear, sharp face dribble running down my chin. In forbidden corners, childhood horror, hide and go. Life becomes perhaps worth living, and those were the days. Allow me this much leverage, a bittersweet twisting of the truth, and those were the days. Empowered shower of blazing sparks, retina of slight degree and free vision. Mark on downgrade, so fade, heartbeat. Let me assure you, I was a brother of low degree.
Let's radio bitches.
Damn, I love that. You know, Depeche, uh, I said Depeche, but that's a funny shit. You know, Hot Job, I believe, is touring right now. Or one of the Dan- Daniel Meyer bands. Go see him if you're in town. Hopefully, they're in town. We're going to play some... We're going to do this one. The Headmaster Ritual by The Smiths. Sounds kind of appropriate for the Fool of the Moon. Yeah, no brain bitches.
that's all we have for this segment. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, tune in because we'll be having more. A charismatic leader. One who has risen above all others speaks to the multitudes. They have waited for him. They believe in him. They expect he will heal the world's ills. Some is the Messiah finally returned. But this man is not a savior. He is the king of terror who will usher in the end of everything. For thousands of years, prophets around the world have predicted the end of days. More than one suggests the apocalypse is fast approaching. We call this theoretical convergence between doomsday prophecies and today's events the Nostradamus effect. The Antichrist, the false messiah, a child of Satan. The word Antichrist first appears in the New Testament. In this ancient text, there is a prophecy that states the Antichrist the beast will come to seduce mankind. Instead, believers say he will usher in the end of days, Armageddon. The Antichrist is a man who receives the power of Satan. The Antichrist, of course, represents the devil on earth. He is a false Messiah. That's exactly what he is. We will examine the theory that the Antichrist is already among us. Who is the Antichrist? Who predicted his arrival? If prophecies are to be believed, do they connect to more than one warning about such a figure? And are they linked to events in our own time in a web of convergence? We will neither refute nor endorse these theories, merely present the evidence. The word Antichrist has its origins in religion, combining the Greek anti, instead of or in place of, with Christ or Christos, the anointed. What it refers to is a period in the early church when various groups were starting to split off each of them understanding Christ's teachings in their own unique way, and each of them denouncing all the others as heretical. So from the point of view of any one of these groups, everybody else was an antichrist. Other religions have their own malevolent figures, but only the religions in the Judaic tradition have an antichrist. The term antichrist is literally only alluded to really in Islam besides Judaism and Christianity and they have their imposter messiah and he will come on the scene in the last days much like the antichrist in the bible will come on the scene in the last days in islam he is called masi adajan or the imposter some biblical interpreters believe that just as jesus is the son of god the antichrist is considered the son of satan in spirituality the enemy of Christ himself is the Antichrist. Even as God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son, theoretically, 
Satan himself will send this man on the planet to be the enemy of all that is good. One of the earliest of the biblical antichrist prophecies comes from the New Testament in the book of Revelation. It describes the antichrist's arrival in the world. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. <laughs> this ancient prophecy entwined with other later prophecies about the Antichrist. Prophecies that may be an example of the Nostradamus effect. For some, the key may lie with Nostradamus himself. Nostradamus was a messenger of the divine plan. He would have been interested in the Antichrist because he would want the human race to know what they were facing in the future, specifically toward the end times. Nostradamus began publishing all of his prophecies, including his visions of the Antichrist, in the mid-16th century. Nostradamus straddled this really obscure line between magic and science, between heresy and conformity. His prophecies consist of ten books called Centuries each consisting of four-lined poems called quatrains. It was within these writings that Nostradamus revealed his visions of the Antichrist. Nostradamus categorically believed that his gift of prophecy was a gift from God. It was his responsibility to alert the world to these things. Some suggest that the visions he experienced were horrible and confusing, a mix of unrecognizable technology and staggering violence. Try to imagine. Do not buy solar panels if you live in one of these 11 states of America. It's the worst decision you could make for your home. Recognizable technology and staggering violence. Try to imagine what it would be like if you had the ability to open a window to five years ahead in the future and you saw fantastic things that went against everything you believe. What would you do with that? He attempted to describe them in his writings. One who the infernal gods of Hannibal will cause to be reborn. Terror to all mankind. Nostradamus dedicated a number of quatrains to Antichrist prophecy. Followers of his quatrains confirmed that Nostradamus did not see just one Antichrist. He saw three Antichrists, each appearing in his own time. Each worse than the last. Nostradamus is unique in the history of prophecy. All other traditions, East and West, have one Antichrist, but he has three. Experts say Nostradamus wrote of two Antichrists that have since come and gone, leaving unparalleled destruction and bloodshed in their wake. Many insist that the final part of this prophecy has yet to come true. They suggest that the third false prophet may be destined to wreak havoc in our own time, and that he may be among us right now. Some believe that the key to unlocking the mystery of the third Antichrist may be found in the identities of the first two, and that clues revealing who they are could be found in Nostradamus's quatrains. An emperor will be born near Italy. He will cost his empire very dearly. In this quatrain, 
it is suggested that Nostradamus prophesied the first Antichrist. Nostradamus predicts this destructive leader will come from southern Europe to plague his own people. Napoleon was born near Italy, he did bring his empire to ruin. In that quatrain, we have a story of a ruler who brought about disaster. Is Napoleon the leader Nostradamus envisioned? Century 1, Quatrain 60 would seem to be a pretty good dead-on prediction as close as Nostradamus comes to an identifiable prophecy which came true in a way that we can recognize. The second Antichrist is even worse. Nostradamus writes that he too is European and possesses unprecedented powers of persuasion. From the very depths of the west of Europe, a young child will be born of poor people. He who by his tongue will seduce a great troop. Hitler was famous for his oratory, for leading a nation astray with his oratorical gift. Once again, Nostradamus's prophecy seems to converge with an actual historical figure, one born centuries later, a man who very nearly conquered the world. Many believe that if Nostradamus successfully predicted the appearance of Napoleon and Hitler, his prophecy of the third Antichrist is also likely to come true. Is this exaggerated doctrine or credible evidence? What are the exact links between these three alleged false prophets? A closer examination of Nostradamus's Antichrist quatrains may allow us to reveal the truth. Nearly 500 years ago, history's famed prophet Nostradamus predicted the arrival of three antichrists, each building on the power of the last. Some believe the third and most dangerous antichrist may be among us now. Things tend to go in threes. In the esoteric world, we call it the law of threes. So the basic idea was that there would be three people that would together, if you looked at the broad range of their history, completely change civilization. Will an investigation of various threads of evidence help us judge the accuracy of the belief that the third Antichrist will appear in our lifetime? Most people already are looking for somebody to lead the world to a global peace to solve these great crises that we have throughout the world. The Antichrist will be that savior. What clues are embedded in the quatrains of Nostradamus? Hints to help us identify the third and worst Antichrist. He warned, at once one will see vengeance, 100 powers, thirst, famine. Some suggest that this is a vision Nostradamus had of our current time, and that it proves the Antichrist is in our midst. In using the word vengeance, is he pointing to our current wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Far East, in our own inner cities? Could the seer's reference to thirst and famine describe the starvation that exists today in drought and poverty-stricken villages? Nostradamus's genius 
may not have been as a seer or a prophet, but as a surrealist poet. His verses are broken, they're hard to understand, and they seem to speak to certain levels of the human mind that aren't always that easy to approach. The reason I put Lee Jen on a license plate in a Lamborghini is because the fastest way that I found to six figures a month and seven figures. 1555, Provence, France. Nostradamus sits in his secluded study. He appears to embark on a psychic journey in search of answers. He hears a voice at a certain point, and suddenly there's a shaking through his robes, and then a terror followed by a divine splendor. And then he hears the god speak. Is Nostradamus really seeing the future? Evidence suggests Nostradamus identified the first Antichrist in one especially cryptic portrait. All, nay, Oleron will be more of fire than blood. Many believe this is Nostradamus's first Antichrist prophecy. He wrote it in 1555. Paul, Ney, Oleron are three towns in southwest France. The fact that the first three words are in bold font uppercase. It's like nudge, nudge, nudge. I'm saying something here that you should look a second time at. For those who see prophecy in his work, Nostradamus is trying in this quatrain to reveal the identity of the first Antichrist by placing him in France. When you rearrange the letters of these three small towns, they spell out Napoleon Roy, Napoleon the King. Roi spelled R-O-Y in the old French for R-O-I. Napoleon Bonaparte, one of history's most notorious tyrants. Is this quatrain proof that the Emperor of France was the first Antichrist prophesied? Did Nostradamus see Napoleon's arrival on the world stage 233 years before he came to power? An emperor will be born near Italy. He will cost his empire very dearly. Born in Corsica, about 30 miles from Italy, Napoleon proclaimed himself Emperor of France in 1799. He presented himself as a champion and savior of his people. Historians see Napoleon as a hero, a savior of France, during a time that France was economically suppressed, during a time when France needed a savior. He came as a false messiah, one who dominated the entire population and even crowned himself people that follow him create evil. In other words, he influences people. According to Nostradamus, the ability to appear as a savior and seduce entire populations is characteristic of the Antichrist. But for interpreters of the prophecies, additional clues point to Napoleon as the first Antichrist, including Nostradamus's veiled warning to a Catholic pope of approaching danger. Roman pontiff, Beware of approaching, out of the city which the two rivers water. In that place, you will come to spit your blood. 
In fact, Napoleon held Pope Pius VI prisoner in the town of Valence, where he later died vomiting blood in the month of August. Valence can be found at the confluence of two rivers. Followers of the famed seer say even Napoleon's contemporaries saw the likeness of the emperor in the writings of Nostradamus. Various prophecies in Nostradamus's verses are even applied to him in Napoleon's own time. One, for example, bearing a name which no French king passed on to him. That is to say, no one else was named Napoleon in the French monarchy, and he wasn't part of the old Bourbon ruling family. More fearsome than a thunderbolt, tremble Italy, Spain, and England, all of whom Napoleon either invaded or fought with. So this kind of prophecy has been very easily applied to Napoleon. But it is believed that perhaps the level of havoc and bloodshed committed in Napoleon's name has most aptly branded him Antichrist. Nostradamus seems clear that the supposed first Antichrist, too, will be soaked in blood. That he is less a prince than a butcher. Certainly Napoleon was responsible for the deaths of many people. When he invaded Russia in 1812, his army starting out was 600,000 men. When he went back defeated, it was 18,000. He is the first Antichrist because one of the things they all share is a great shedding of blood. And that was the first big modern shedding of blood, Napoleon. Responsible one way or another for three and a half million deaths, likely more than any other single human being before him, many conclude that Napoleon does fit the description of the first Antichrist. The quatrains further state, but the French nation will fear the hour, north wind, the army having pushed too far. Even his wintry defeat after pushing too far into Russia, the north wind, seems to be echoed in Nostradamus's quatrains. Did Napoleon himself believe he was the first antichrist Nostradamus prophesied? Evidence suggests the emperor was drawn to his writings. Napoleon traveled with a collection of Nostradamus's prophecies on his bedside table. Unfortunately, they were forgeries. At the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon ordered a genocide in France. The message was, from now on, the only way to bring the power back to the self is by saying... At the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon ordered a genocide in France's colony in Haiti. His troops slaughtered as many as 100,000 slaves, gassing some of them with sulfur dioxide in the holds of French ships. A preview of genocide to come? Experts on Nostradamus's Antichrist prophecy believe Napoleon's actions created the conditions for a second and third Antichrist to follow, each who would ravage mankind, just as Nostradamus prophesied. If you did not have a Napoleon Bonaparte, he would not have had the steps which would have led to a unification of Germany later in the 19th century, which led to the second Antichrist, which created the modern world that created the atmosphere for the oncoming and third and final Antichrist. There is no doubt that Napoleon's trail of misery and destruction marks him as one of history's monsters. And if prophecy is to be believed, he is more perhaps the first Antichrist foretold by Nostradamus. 
are there really multiple links between Nostradamus and Napoleon Bonaparte? And are they more than coincidence? How strong is the connection between Napoleon and our second alleged Antichrist, Adolf Hitler? Is it possible that these connections will lead us to identify the third Antichrist? If the Nostradamus effect is true, have the warnings in ancient texts and prophecies from Nostradamus himself converged to suggest that the end of days has actually begun? What, if any, would be the signs of Armageddon? I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. God said throughout the Old Testament that in the last days, I will draw my people from the four corners of the earth back to the land of their forefathers, Palestine. That literally opened the curtain for the Antichrist to come on the scene. We are examining whether an Antichrist of biblical proportions has arrived to accelerate the chaos and destruction witnessed in the modern world. The quatrains of Nostradamus suggest that this Antichrist will be the last of three false messiahs. His arrival will be immediately preceded by a second evil, one who creates the conditions for the last of Nostradamus's Antichrists to destroy the world. For centuries, followers of Nostradamus have examined his quatrains for clues to the identity of the second Antichrist. From the very depths of the west of Europe. Nostradamus feared that the second Antichrist would be many times more brutal than the first. Nostradamus is telling us that something is coming upon the earth that we are not used to, that he has described, if you like, in the first two Antichrists. They weren't simply national monsters, they were supranational monsters. They had enormous worldwide influence. And I think that that's what he's implying here. His prophecies about the second Antichrist are among his most persistent and specific. Many agree they point directly at history's most notorious madman. <laughs> he who by his tongue will seduce a great trap. Nostradamus first mentions the second Antichrist in this chilling quatrain, which dooms Europe to another round of terror and destruction. And there is just such a man from the exact location prophesied by Nostradamus, Adolf Hitler. Liberty will not be regained. It will be occupied by a black, proud, villainous, and unjust man. When the matter of the pontiff is opened, the Republic of Venice will be vexed by Dizder. Hitler often appears in interpretations of Nostradamus largely because Nostradamus keeps referring to a figure called Hister, which is fairly close to Hitler, and it means the Danube. Here, Nostradamus's prophecy seems precisely on target. Hitler was born in Austria, and Austria's main river is the Danube. It didn't take people long in Hitler's time to start applying them to him. Moreover, Magda Goebbels, who is the wife of Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, who was interested in the occult, came across these things and said, wow, this must be about Hitler. 
she wasn't alone. Others made this same connection. The typesetter in one of the early versions of the prophecies actually turned one of the hister ister quatrains into Hitler by mistaking the letter and substituting the T. Hitler was known for his mesmerizing and charismatic speeches. In less than 10 years, he seduced Germany into waging war across the globe with virtually unquestioned impunity. Most disturbing, he convinced Germans to carry out a genocide that virtually wiped out European Jews and other victims. In all, more than six million people. Nostradamus writes, his fame will increase towards the realm of the East. The last line is quite interesting, which also points to it being about Hitler. Imperial Japan became so enamored with Adolf Hitler. There is dimensional entities that are walking among us. Imperial Japan became so enamored with Adolf Hitler that it led to the Tripartite Act, the Axis Alliance, which united Mussolini's Rome with Hitler's Third Reich and Imperial Japan. Responsible for a death toll that reached into the tens of millions, Hitler is synonymous with evil more than any other single human being in history. But could he also be Nostradamus's second Antichrist? The way to understand why Hitler is the second Antichrist is, again, the steps that the first Antichrist initiates Napoleon by creating the modern world through the Napoleonic Wars that created the unification of Germany, the Second Reich, which led to the creation of the Third Reich of Adolf Hitler. That's the link between the first and the second. It is suggested that, like Napoleon before him, Hitler may have been aware of his own destiny as an Antichrist, as revealed in the quatrains of Nostradamus. Hitler was part of an esoteric and occult underworld before the First World War that was fascinated by Nostradamus and his prophecies. By 1939, Hitler was self-identifying with the idea of being the second Antichrist. Since this was such a large conflict, since this was another one of Nostradamus' very meaningful time periods, then this must be the second of his three Antichrists. They also believe Hitler perhaps saw Napoleon as his Antichrist predecessor. He revered Napoleon and soon after the fall of France in 1940, visited the French dictator's tomb. And even more verses seem to link Hitler to Nostradamus's second Antichrist. He seems to hint at Hitler's downfall. Beast ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. If you were in the 16th century and you had to describe an automobile or a tank, or a floating attack boat. You might call it a beast that roared with its thundering engines that breathed like a dragon, that come across the great rivers. Beast ferocious with hunger. He's trying to look at fantastic technology that he's never seen before. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. And the cage of iron, is this Hitler's bunker? the bunker that Hitler retreated to toward the end of this reign. If an emissary of future visions gave you a great trench dug in Berlin, 
that had all this amazing iron rebar work for a huge bunker that was under construction. Wouldn't it be said that you put that man underground into this great cage, which became the Fuhrer bunker? It was in this bunker that Hitler, on the verge of losing the war he himself initiated, committed suicide. 